Well, today we're continuing the sermon series on adventures and missing the point. Jesus came to demonstrate and teach us what the Father's heart is and really what God's desire is for us to have a relationship with a holy and a loving God. And we know the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, they really knew a lot about God's Word. They studied God's Word. They, they, knew, they got a lot of things right, but there were some things that they misunderstood. There were some things that they were not doing right, and uh, they were misleading many people in the day in terms of how they could best have a relationship with God. And last week we looked at how we miss the point if we point to ourselves and our righteousness instead of pointing others to the grace of God. And today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus shares with two very different groups of people to help them understand God's heart and his ways and and to help them avoid missing the point. And the first group is described as sinners and tax collectors. Now, this group was far away from God, and they knew that and they believed that. They also believed they were so far away from God that there was nothing that they could do to ever regain a relationship with God. They, they thought that God had given up on them, and, and he wanted nothing to do with them. And they believed that because the religious leaders, were the, those were the things that they were communicating to these groups of people. Now, the Pharisees, again, we knew that they knew God's word. They knew God's holiness and his covenant toward his people. And while they should have been inviting to re- people to return in repentance to God, to reestablish that relationship with God, the Pharisees had set up a religious standard that was nearly impossible for anybody to live up to, especially people who've been struggling in sin. And so it really was building a wall up between those people and them believing that they could ever reestablish a relationship with God. They should have been teaching and helping people to return to God, and instead they were making it harder on them and and people who had fallen away from God. And the Pharisees thought that they were better than most, and they thought they were for sure better than the tax collectors and the sinners, and they were missing the point. And so Jesus goes on and tells three parables or three stories in Luke chapter 15 to help both groups understand God's heart towards all. I'm going to invite us to read Luke 15, starting in verse 1, and then we're going to skip down to verse 11. And since this is such a famous uh, passage of Scripture, I'm going to give you a challenge as I read it this morning. I want you to find where in the story would it be shocking for people who lived in Jesus' day as they heard Jesus telling this story. So let's look at that passage together. Again, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We're going to skip down to verse 11. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and heaven 
and, and I no longer am worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was still in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, been, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. And refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who was lost squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let me pray as we begin the message. Father, thank you so much for this incredible story that Jesus tells to to communicate to sinners and tax collectors, but also to the Pharisees that God's love is lavish and is for everyone, no matter what condition, no matter how sinful we've been, God. We're grateful for the way that Jesus communicates your love to all. God, we pray that you would open our ears, our hearts, our minds to receive what you have today in this word and in this message. And Lord, I just pray that in my weakness you would be strong. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the beginning of Luke chapter 15 explains why Jesus tells this parable. Again, it says, One day a group of tax collectors and sinners gathered around Jesus because they were so attracted to him and they enjoyed hearing him teach. And in verse 2 of that same passage, it says, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus thinks to himself, How can I show both groups, both these religious, unacceptable, religious, irreligious group of people, sinners and tax collectors, but also these really religious people, What's the whole point of it all? Where is the Father's heart in all of this? And so Jesus tells these three parables in Luke 15. And, and these are stories that people can relate with, but they're also very radical and challenge us. And so when he tells the last story, the story of the prodigal son, but in all of them, he's communicating the overwhelming, initiating love of God. That God's love is lavish and that God is initiating with his love to all that he has created. So Jesus tells the first parable about a lost sheep. A shepherd loses a sheep. He goes, he leaves the 99. He goes looking for the one lost sheep until he finds it. And then he tells the parable of a, a lost coin, a woman who loses a coin in her house. And she turns her house upside down looking for this one valuable coin. And when she finds it, she celebrates and she tells everybody that she found this coin. She's so excited about it. And finally, it's a parable about lost sons. 
And Jesus uh, says, you know, hey, this situation is getting more and more personal. Both of his sons were actually lost in the story. And when the younger son returns, the father is so happy about it, he throws a big party. And there's three major characters in this story that Jesus tells. The father who remains constant through the whole story. You've got the younger son who was rebellious at the beginning and then realizes just how desperate situation he is. And he repents. He returns. He comes home and the father throws a huge party for him. And then the older son who had everything all the time but was still angry, very angry. And we don't know what happens to him in the end of the story. In verse 12, again, as we begin the parable, the younger son asked the father to divide up his property. And the Greek word for property is bios, which we get the word we use for biology. And so literally, he's asking his father to divide his life and give away his, part of his life to the younger son. And this is so shocking to the culture of that day because parents were so highly respected. It's like he's saying to the father, I want your stuff. But I don't want you. In fact, it really doesn't matter to me whether you're alive or you're dead. You mean nothing to me. And then it says in the scripture that he went to a country that was far, far away. And he had nothing to do with his father. He was saying to the father, I don't want you to be involved in any part of my life. Let me live the life the way that I want to live life. And people around Jesus at that moment probably would have thought, all right, this story is going to be pretty short, you know, end of story, because this is so insulting. They couldn't imagine anything happening other than the father responding to the son when he asks for the division of property, saying, no, in fact, I'm going to disown you. I'm not going to give you this. Get away from me because of how disrespectful you're treating me. But Jesus goes on in the story in a shocking way because he says, no, the father divides the property, sells the part that should go to the younger son, and gives him the money. And so, according to the culture of the time, the older son would have had twice as much of the inheritance as the younger son. So it means the younger son gets one-third of all that the father has, and he ends up leaving. And whatever is left belongs to the older son at the inheritance. And the father gives him the money. We don't know why. There's no motivation in the story. Maybe the father just realizes the boy's only going to ultimately learn in the school of hard knocks. And so anyway, the money, the son takes the money, he runs away, and he goes off to this far country where verse 13 tells us he squanders his wealth in wild living. He lives up the party. He has a great time, but he spends all the money. And afterwards, there's a severe famine and he doesn't have any money left. And he goes to work in one of the most unclean places for any Jew to work a pig farm. And he gets so hungry that he starts dr- dreaming of eating the pig's food and nobody gives him any food. In an AA language, he has hit rock bottom. He has come to the end of himself. In verse 17, there's this pivotal point that he has a turnaround. For he comes to his senses, it says in Scripture, and he realizes that his father's hired hands have life much better than he does. So he prepares a speech to humble himself before his father, and he requests to request employment. And knowing he's no longer worthy to be called the father's son. And so when the younger son, son comes back, after he's spent everything and he realizes how wrong he is, the father, when he sees him, he runs out and he hugs him. And now in these, and back in these days, when Jesus tells the story, there was no Middle Eastern man that would ever run. Okay, children might run, but the head of the household would never run. And yet Jesus tells a story, and these people have an image in in their minds of this father picking up his robe and running awkwardly out to greet this son 
who's been so disrespectful and who's a mess because of working in a pig farm. It just would have been so shocking to them. And here's something that's shocking about the the parable to the people of that time, to the tax collectors and the sinners that were there listening as well, or people who had no relationship to God. Jesus is saying, don't you dare think for a minute that God doesn't love you. Don't dare think that you are ever too far away from God, that he doesn't have his eyes on you. We miss the point if we think we could ever do anything that would cause God to stop loving us. In verse 21, we see that the younger son was going to work his way back to the house. And he practiced this whole speech that he was going to tell his father about how he was sorry and how he was going to go to work for him. But when the father runs out to greet him and and the son begins the story, the father cuts him off. And the father's response is, I'm not going to wait for you to clean up, to prove yourself, to earn your way back into the family. Not, that's not how you're going to come home. Instead, the father says, bring him the robe, the best robe. Bring the ring. Bring some really nice sandals. Kill the fatted calf and let's have a party. He's restoring the sonship to the son. And with that, he welcomes the younger son back into the home and he shows him a place at the table and his place is not taken away. Inside this house, this place, is a place of grace. It's a place of acceptance and of love. And he's saying basically to the son, I'm going to take you now just as you are. There's nothing you need to do to earn your way back into our family. And all three of these parables have the same theme, that that God's lavish love and initiating love for us from the day that the son left until he returns, the father never changes. He's just there waiting and watching and waiting for us to come home. I like what First John 19, uh, chapter 4, verse 19 says. It says, we love because he first loved us. It all comes from God. But there's a second part to it. In verse 21, it says, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't tell this story to counsel Christian parents about their children who have been rebellious. It was told by Jesus to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees would know that and unpack about the lavish, unla- the lavish love that God has for everyone, for all those that he's created. And the father shows how much he, he loves the younger son. There's, there's also the older son in the story. It shifts to the older son. And by this time, he's the one who's staying outside the house. Throughout the whole end of the story, he never comes in to the father's house, into the party. The older son, we know, is the good one. He's the obedient one. He's always obeying the father. He never disobeys. He works hard. But when he hears his brother is back, he is not happy. And why is he not happy? There's something very important to men about why he's not happy. It's not respect, which I think is maybe the second most important thing for men. No, it's the most important is meat. Did you hear me right? Meat. It's about the fatted calf, okay? It's about the barbecue briskets. You weren't expecting that, were you? Middle Eastern people didn't eat meat very often with a meal. In fact, when they did eat meat, they would have to eat all of it because that was before refrigeration. They had no way to preserve that meat. And so, you know, if you killed a chicken, you could feed your whole family. If you killed a young goat, you could feed all of your friends. If you killed a fattened calf, you could feed the whole village. And so this is a huge party. It's a big deal. And the older son says, wait a minute. According to what the younger brother did, he deserves nothing 
but you give him the barbecue brisket. You're celebrating with the whole village. I'm working so hard for you, but I don't even get a goat. I don't really care if my brother is alive or dead, but you killed the fattened calf. And there it is. There it is. We see the the older son's heart is not right with the father either. He doesn't understand the father's heart in this moment. The younger son, we know from the earlier in the story, he he wanted the father's things sooner than he deserved. But the older son also is using the father to get the things that he wants, the status, the wealth, the blessing, to fulfill his own agenda. And his relationship with the father is also broken. And we have several hints of it in the passage. Look at verse 25. It says, when he heard music and dancing, he didn't go into the house and ask the father what was going on. He asked the servant. He didn't go inside and check it out for himself. Even though he's working hard, he doesn't even understand why he's doing it. There's no communication, or it's not good communication with the Father. Just like when we don't have a healthy prayer life with God. So when we're far from God's heart, we start to focus on ourselves, and we start to focus on our own agenda. The older son didn't have a healthy relationship with his father either. The older son was even being rude to the father also. He said, look, all these years I've served you, all these years I've worked for you. And he didn't even call him father. He says, look. And when we're rude to people, other people, we're saying, I'm more important than you are. The older son completely misses the point. We miss the point if we think God's grace is not fair according to human standards. If it were about fairness instead of grace, we would all be excluded from the father's party. None of us is worthy of of God's blessings. The older son humiliated his father by not joining into the party. And again, it's the father who comes outside to beg with this son to have him come back inside. And the same patient, loving father is pleading with him. The father says, all I have is yours. Your place at the table is secure. But that's the end of the story, and it's left to our imagination to figure out just how did the older brother fare. It's clear enough He doesn't understand the father. He resents the son who returned, but he also resents the father who's allowed the the son who's gone wayward to come back in and to be accepted back into the family. At the very least, the older brother in the story is a character who cautions us about being caught up in self-righteousness by thinking too highly of ourselves, either in relationship in our relationship with God or in our relationship with one another, which was something that the Pharisees struggled with. They struggled with their pride, thinking that they were somehow better than others in God's eyes. And Jesus is calling them out in this story. And getting caught up, you know, it also cautions us against, against getting caught up in feeling That we have to work to earn God's favor in some way. And being trapped and joyless in a sense of duty and obligation to God. There's a far better way to relate to God. And I think it begins by grasping at the heart level the joy of the father in the story of the prodigal son. It's by affirming and saying yes deep within our own spirits to the fatherhood of God. The deep compassion of God toward all people. It's by appreciating the way in which he grants us freedom, the freedom to choose between right and wrong, the the freedom to choose good from bad, the freedom to choose generosity towards other people instead of selfishness. But then this is really remarkable to me that he doesn't turn his back on us. He has compassion on us. He suffers with us the pain and the consequences of our own 
wayward actions. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are represented by the older son in the parable who became angry and he refused to go into the party. They didn't like the fact that Jesus and therefore God doesn't play by their rules. They didn't like the fact that God rejoices and welcomes sinners. The parable leaves the older brother fuming outside the party. What will he do? So where are we in this parable? Are we inside with those who are celebrating the the Father's grace? Are we standing outside with our arms folded, upset because somehow we don't think that we're getting what we expect from God or that somehow God has not given us a fair shake or a fair deal? Who's the real prodigal in this parable? It's not the one with the shady past who repents. No. It's the one who can't bring himself to forgive. It's the one who stays outside the party. The dead one, the lost one, is the one who stubbornly chooses to remain outside the father's party. And the father says, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And God welcomes us home just as we are. But to bring us back home costs him a lot. I want to share a story about a man named Ernest Gordon. He was a Scottish prisoner of war in World War II. He wrote Miracle on the River Kwai to tell the story of his experiences at the hands of the Japanese captors as he and his fellow soldiers uh, would force to work on the Burma Railroad. And the cost to construct the Burma Railroad was exceedingly high. It was astronomical. And I'm not talking about financial terms. I'm talking about human terms, human loss. The studies had shown that that on average 400 men per mile of railroad built lost their lives as they built that railroad. Because the prisoners labored under inhumane conditions, oppressive heat, tropical disease, stinging insects, uh, inadequate food, dirty water, and they were living under the worst of conditions in the jungle. And the Japanese guards were mean, they were crazy, they were sadistic, and many of the prisoners died in this terrible environment. And the prisoners of war became like frightened, cornered animals. The men adopted an extreme survivalist mentality. Men were primarily motivated by fear and hate. And it's like they were living in hell. The atmosphere in which they lived in was poisoned by selfishness, hatred, and fear. People just looked out only for themselves. The weak were trampled underfoot. The sick were ignored. The dead forgotten. When a man lay dying, there was no word of mercy. When somebody cried out for help, nobody turned their their head even to look at that person. Hate was the motivation for living. They hated the Japanese. And then one day, a shovel changed everything. At the end of the day, the tools had to be collected, and the guards would count and make sure all the tools were returned. And one day, a, a Japanese guard shouted out that one of the shovels was missing, and he immediately demanded that whoever was responsible step forward, and nobody moved a muscle. And the guard had him immediately get down on their hands and their knees, and he began to get riled up and ranting and raving. And he was saying, you know, come forward, and nobody was moving, nobody was coming forward. And the Japanese guard said, all will die, all will die. He began to take his rifle out and was pointing it at the heads of the prisoners. And they thought they were all going to be shot. And when he began to do that, one man stood up and stepped forward. And nobody said a word. And the the guard began to beat him. And ultimately, he beat him to death. And then prisoners watched. Nobody said anything. And ultimately, they returned back to camp. The tools were counted one more time. But this time, there was no shovel missing because the first time, somebody had miscounted. This man had stood up 
And he was in innocence. And the word of this spread like wildfire in the camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save the others. And this one man's selfless act completely changed the camp's atmosphere. People started to question, what is the meaning of life? Why did he do that? Is there really a God and am I ready to meet him? The men began to treat each other like brothers with care and kindness because they didn't feel like their lives belonged to themselves anymore. The reason that they lived was because of that man. And Gordon describes the effect in his book. He says, quote, he says, death was still with us, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, evil, jealousy, greed, laziness, and pride were anti-life. But love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, creative faith were essence of life. Turning mere existence into living in the truest sense. These were gifts of God to the men. There was still hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life in fellowship. Something had changed for these prisoners of war because they had experienced something. They had experienced sacrificial love. And the sacrifice even impacted how they responded to the Japanese guards. And and when the war was over and, and the Allies had rushed in to take over the camp, and they were so angry at the Japanese guards for how they had treated the prisoners, and they were ready to kill them. And the prisoners who looked like walking skeletons literally stood up and stood in front of their Japanese uh, uh, guards, and they said, no, you cannot kill these men. We will not let you kill these men. Something had changed. That's the power of sacrificial love. An innocent man drastically changed the culture in that camp. And the Bible tells us about this sacrificial love. When Jesus wanted to change the culture, he didn't just tell a great story. He's the only true innocent man who stepped up in front to take on the punishment. He was not a prisoner of war. He is God. On the cross, there was a God asking a God, Father, why have you forsaken me? I did everything right. But still he bore the pain and took the ultimate separation from God so that God can say to us, welcome home. I like what John says in 1 John 4:11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Just imagine if we as a community who have experienced God's lavish love for us would also live this out. Then perhaps there would be more room at the table for others just like there is for us to sit with us in this home that God has made, this place, this fellowship, this place where we can celebrate all who come back to God. I want us just to, as we close, just to take a moment to reflect on our relationship with God. Are you inside or outside the house? Maybe you've never entered into the house. God's saying, I, I don't, I'm not going to wait for you to get all cleaned up or get everything put back together again. I want to take you right now. I want to welcome you right now, just as you are. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while. And how's your relationship with, with other people in your life going? Are you feeling outside because you still refuse to forgive somebody who's hurt you or wronged you in your life? How's your relationship with God? Are you unintentionally standing outside upset with God because you feel that in some way He didn't do something you expected Him to do or 
He didn't treat you fairly the way you thought you should be. God's still pleading with you. He's pleading with you saying, don't look at what I'm doing for other people. Look at what I've done for you. I'm calling you. I'm inviting you. I want you to come inside and be with me. Sit at the table again and join me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this incredible story, parable, that Jesus speaks to the hearts of sinners and tax collectors and communicates God's love for them no matter their situation. God, we know that's true for us as well. That there is nothing that we have ever done or will ever do that will stop you from loving us. And God, that you welcome us back into your arms. If we just take one step toward you, you run to meet us, God. And God, I pray for any in the room who might be now ready to make a decision to follow Jesus. I just invite you to pray a quiet prayer in your heart with me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I'm so sorry for all the things that I've done wrong, the ways that I've lived in rebellion to you. And I want to come home. I want to give my life to you. I want to follow you as my Lord and my leader. I'm sorry for those things I've done wrong. And I ask for your forgiveness, Jesus. Help me to be a faithful follower of yours. And know if you prayed that prayer that all of heaven is breaking out in celebration over your turn towards home with God. And God, I pray for all of us that are in the room as well. God, there may be some who might feel distanced from you. Maybe we feel like we're standing outside the party. Maybe it's because we're struggling to forgive someone who's really hurt us or harmed us. God, I pray that you would give courage and grace to those folks and help us, God, to forgive that person, even if they're not asking for forgiveness, so that we can be freed from the bondage of bitterness and unforgiving spirits. And God, if we're feeling like maybe we're on the outside because we're disappointed or we don't understand why you've done some things or why you've allowed some things to happen in our life, God, I pray that, that we would understand how much you love us that you desire for us to come back in and have fellowship with you, that we can experience this grace that you have for all. God, that in some ways your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and some of the things that happen in this life are simply mysterious. But remind us, remind us, God, if we're hurting, of your great love for us. Call us home, God. God, again, we're so grateful for your lavish love for your grace that, uh, that is far greater than any wrong or any sin that we've ever committed. And we offer ourselves to you, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.